Kennan. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGN News, How on Earth, for Tuesday, December 13th, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, CU biologist Christy McCain talks about how climate change, especially precipitation, is affecting frogs, salamanders, and other species in mountain ecosystems. When you factor in precipitation to extinction risk, it turns out that um, that that is much more risky than temperature change alone. And we talked to John Farrell from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance about Boulder's options for incentivizing renewable energy. Now let's go to our staff physicist, Joel Parker, for a late-breaking story from the physics world. <laughs> and late-breaking, indeed. Over the last week, rumors were flying in the world of physics and on the Internet that the Higgs boson, nicknamed the God Particle, had been discovered and would be announced today. The wonky details of subatomic particle physics seemed to catch the interest and imagination of the public around the world. Well, literally just moments ago... Scientists at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, announced new results from the Large Hadron Collider, stating that they have found consistent but not yet definitive evidence of the Higgs boson. Now, why does a marginal result in a progress report in such an obscure and technical field generate such widespread interest? Well, it is because the result could change how we view the universe as profoundly and fundamentally as the mind-bending concepts of relativity and quantum mechanics. The Higgs boson may in fact explain what mass is and take physicists a significant step closer to unifying theory of matter. An analogy would be how your hand feels when you wave it through the air versus when you wave it through the water. Your hand may feel light, you might say massless, when you wave it in the air. But when you wave it in the water, it feels heavier and moves more slowly because the water particles interact with your hand and slows it down. In much the same way, different particles feel different forces or resistance when they interact with the Higgs boson. And it is this resistance that is the thing that we call the mass of an object. So to try to find this particle, scientists at the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, that accelerates beams of protons to extremely high speeds, only about three meters per second slower than the speed of light. At these tremendous speeds, the resulting collisions allow us to peer into the small structures of matter and find evidence of new particles in the resulting debris. Sifting through the debris of billions of such collisions, the scientists at the LHC have found tantalizing evidence of the Higgs particle. It's not definitive evidence yet. In technical terms, two of the detectors at the LHC independently have found evidence between the two to three sigma level, but a five sigma level is required for what would be claimed as a discovery. To explain, a three sigma measurement means you have a 99.7% confidence level. That seems pretty confident, but really it means that there's still a 1 out of 370 chance of it being a false positive or just random noise. To claim discovery of a new particle, the bar is set much higher at a 5 sigma measurement, which means a confidence level at better than 99.99994% level, or about 1 out of 7, 1.7 million chance of being a false positive. So, Although the possible detections announced today are very important, it will likely be known as the day when the 
theory of the Higgs boson exploded from particle physics laboratory chalkboards into the public consciousness and upsetting our perception of reality, it likely will take a year or more to collect enough data to breach that five sigma limit and officially claim discovery of the God particle. And on more earthly <laughs> topics, but also breaking news, Colorado's oil and gas regulators are deciding this morning on proposed new rules covering the controversial practice of hydraulic fracturing. Energy companies and environmentalists alike have been long anticipating the ruling. Specifically, the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission will vote on whether to require natural gas drillers to disclose all the ingredients in their fracking fluid. They pump a cocktail of chemicals and water at high pressure to underground formations to break up the rock and release natural gas. The commission will also decide whether to give local officials 48 hours notice of fracking operations. According to the Denver Post, politicians representing Commerce City said they were caught off guard by recent fracking in Adams County. So close to here. Halliburton and other companies have said they would support listing the ingredients, but they don't want to publicly disclose their amounts. Many residents in gas-rich areas, ranging from Pennsylvania to Wyoming to Colorado, worry that fracking is contaminating drinking water. A draft report recently released about drilling in Wyoming underscored those fears. It showed a possible link between groundwater pollution and hydraulic fracking. You can find out more about today's vote by googling COGCC for the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission and going to the commission's website. From the History Vault, 110 years ago, Marconi sent the first transatlantic radio signal from Cornwall, England. The signal was received in St. John's, Newfoundland. And tonight, at the Café Sci in Denver, Professor Baylor Fox Kemper of the Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at CU will give a lecture on the future of El Nino. The lecture will be held at the Wincoop Brewery, and it begins at 6.30. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. In last month's election, Boulder voters gave the go-ahead for the city to move forward on municipalizing the electrical utility. The chief motivation for that decision was to put more renewable energy on the grid. There are a large number of policy options to incentivize renewable energy. So many, it's hard to keep them all straight. We have on the phone with us John Farrell, a senior researcher at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis. Mr. Farrell is going to help us uh, sort them out. John, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's great to be here. John, as we said, the, the range of incentives is bewildering. We have production tax credits, investment tax credits, renewable portfolio standards, feed-in tariffs, and probably some I'm forgetting about. Uh, can you make a distinction between these uh, policies? Sure. You know, I, I think the best way to do it is to sort of back up a step and look at what's the purpose of incentivizing renewable energy. And I think a lot of people see it as, you know, just how do we get more sort of clean electrons on the electricity system? And I think one of the things that's really important to realize is that most people think of this as how do we marry the environmental goals of clean energy with economic goals? In other words, how do we make sure that people can really benefit from it? So when we come back here now and look at what the incentives are, I think it's important to keep that in mind. For example, at the federal level, that's kind of where most of our big incentives for clean energy are in the form of tax credits for you know, wind power or solar power, et cetera. Um, and tax credits are great incentives unless you can't use them. So that means, for example, no solar for schools because schools don't pay taxes or no wind for the water department in your city because the city doesn't pay taxes. And, you know, honestly, there are workarounds for this, 
but they tend to avoid these kind of complex legal arrangements between your public entities like a school and some sort of you know, large corporation or Wall Street bank. And that really makes our clean energy program a little more dependent on Wall Street uh, rather than dependent on Main Street. And you're right that it costs about uh, twice as much to do it this way because of the, 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 the bit that uh, Wall Street skims off? That's right. There are, there are a lot of transaction costs, you know, from the legal work to set up these partnerships and, and, and also from the fact that Wall Street's only participating in this to make money. They're not interested in the local economic development or the development of clean energy. It's really just about whether or not they can make a return on their investment. So, so John, as you know, Boulder's uh, were going down the path to uh, take over the electrical utility yet to be determined if it's going to happen or not. Um, but that, that frees us from a lot of constraints from uh, the PUC and, and otherwise. Um, if you were designing uh, Boulder's program, what kind of plan would you devise to get the cleanest power at the lowest cost for us? Well, Boulder is just a terrific example of what happens when you try to capture the local authority and the local control over your energy system because you really do, like you said, have a lot of options. I mean, Boulder used to send or still does spend about $100 million a year for its electricity, and that's money that can be kept in the local economy uh, with that local control of the utility system. And, you know, one of the kinds of policies, you know, there are a lot of great different ways that they could go about it. You know, for example, you could use uh, cash payments. In fact, the federal government has used a cash payment uh, instead of tax credits over the past couple of years um, as part of the stimulus package to sort of a, a clean energy bailout, if you will, to, to help clean energy companies during the economic downturn when folks couldn't use tax credits. Uh, but another policy, it's ter a terrible name, but a very good policy, is called a feed-in tariff. Uh, it's actually um, a policy, a clean energy policy that's responsible for about two-thirds of the world's wind power and almost 90% of the world's solar power. And the basic premise behind it is you say to folks, you say to your local utility, the local utility says, we will buy clean energy from anybody who produces it, um, no matter who they are, a homeowner or a business, um, you know, or someone who is a professional energy producer, and we'll connect you to the grid and we'll sign a long-term contract to buy your power and we'll pay you enough to make it worth your while to do that, to, get, to bring that clean energy onto the grid. Um, it's actually a lot like what Excel Energy or another big utility gets from the Public Utility Commission when they build a really big power plant, and it's just democratizing that, uh, that policy for everybody to participate. So, so John, how would you respond to a critic uh, who would assert that uh, renewable energy should survive on its own without any subsidies? <laughs> I always kind of laugh at that because... Um, you know, the, the problem is that we have always had an energy system with a lot of externalities, which means we never quite pay the full cost of what it actually costs us to get that energy. And, you know, a lot of that is, you know, the pollution, for example, that we suffer from, uh, you know, when we uh, dig coal out of the ground and burn it and put that pollution up into the air. Um, you know, we're not paying the full cost of that. So on the one hand, I would say it's unreasonable for us to, to look at the cost of what our electricity is now and to think that that's a fair way of measuring against our renewable energy. The other thing, too, is that renewable energy is really in its early commercial stage. And just like we did when we were developing fossil fuel energy sources, we should also provide some incentives to help um, help mature the clean energy technologies so they can be competitive. I mean, a great example is I'm just doing some research on how solar, the cost of solar is falling, falling so rapidly. And in, in about five years, uh, you know, one in five or maybe one in six Americans will be able to go solar for less than the cost of the electricity from uh, their utility without any incentives at all. No federal tax credits, no local incentives. I mean, that's where solar is going. And so this is the kind of technology that we want to provide some incentives to help it move down that line of commercialization and, until it can be fully competitive.
Okay, let's move on to jobs. That's a, something that's uh, big in the news these days. Um, are incentives for renewable energy, is that a cost-effective uh, means of uh, creating jobs at the same time? You know, it, it does depend. There are different ways to go about it uh, to get those jobs, and, and, and some are better than others. I mean, the disadvantage with doing kind of what we do at the broad scale at the federal level with tax credits is you're essentially saying to anybody, whoever builds that renewable energy project, you're going to get an incentive for building it. Um, you don't have, that doesn't mean that you have to use local labor when you build that project. Uh, it doesn't mean that you have to uh, use, uh, you know, be locally owned. Um, it, you could be a foreign firm building a renewable energy project in the United States and still take advantage of those incentives. And on the one hand, that's good if we just want more clean energy. But on the other hand, what we need to do, I think, more, more specifically, is make sure that our policies really are focused on um, getting the best bang for our buck economically. And we do that by making sure that it's easier to have local ownership. And that's, for example, the problem I mentioned earlier when we use tax credits. You know, schools or cities are a great way for us to develop clean energy in a way, or municipal utilities, in the case of Boulder, uh, in a way that's going to keep all of those economic benefits local because it's going to be locally owned. Um, yet it's very difficult to do that under our current uh, system of tax incentives because uh, those local entities can't take advantage of tax incentives without making partnerships with outside entities that will uh, you know, suck some of that uh, economic activity away. Okay, John, we have just about a minute left. Is there anything you'd like to uh, emphasize uh, from our discussion? Yeah, I think that the, really the key here is that, you know, we want to look at policies that democratize the energy system, that not only take advantage of the way that renewable energy is transforming us from a system where we had, you know, lots of big power plants owned by utilities to one where anybody can be a generator, but also a way to democratize the control of that system. I mean, think about how ownership matters. When you put solar on the rooftop of a house, it's not just some solar electricity, and even some local economic development. That's two people who are solar voters now who are willing to support more clean energy policy. And so I think we need to think of ways that our policy encourages that kind of development. Okay, John, can you uh, point us to, to your website and perhaps a, a Twitter address in case people want to uh, follow what you're doing? Absolutely. Uh, the best way to find uh, our work on energy is actually our website, energyselfreliantstates.org, all one word or at ILSR.org for the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at John F. and Frank Farrell, um, and I keep those updates coming. Okay, thank you very much. That was John Farrell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Thank you. Earth, I'm Susan Moran. Mountainous areas like the Rockies are hot spots for plant and animal biodiversity. As the climate warms, many of these species, including Colorado's iconic pika, are under threat. Most research has focused on the effects of temperature change, but less is focused on the interactions of temperature and precipitation in a changing climate. University of Colorado biologist Christy McCain is closely examining those interrelationships. She's been studying patterns of diversity for vertebrates on mountains around the world. She co-authored a paper that was recently published in the journal Ecology Letters about how precipitation changes appear to be far more risky than temperature change alone. And it doesn't bode well for many species. Christy is an assistant professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at CU Boulder and curator of vertebrate zoology at the University of Colorado Museum. Christy, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you very much. So I just want you to tease out first sort of the key points of this recent study, because it did seem it was a pretty big jump beyond a lot of the 
research that's been done on climate change around mostly temperature. Yeah. So we took about 16,000 or 17,000 species distributions on mountains. So birds and mammals, bats, uh, frogs, salamanders. And we asked the question is, you know, if we just model uh, how temperature would change species distributions on mountains alone in 100 years, what would be the risk for extinction? And then we modeled if you combine that temperature change with precipitation on each mountain, what would be the risk for extinction? And what we found is that, in fact, for temperature alone, the risks for vertebrates are quite low. They can be around 5%, so meaning for the whole number of species on that mountain, 5% of the species might go extinct. But when you factor in both temperature and precipitation, that jumps to an average of 50% of the species predicted to go extinct on each mountain, which is a huge jump. That's a and huge jump. And that's, it, you're talking about any mountainous regions? Well, we looked at mountains all over the world. We compared tropics, temperate zones, uh, arctic zones, and desert mountains. And so across those mountains, it depends on how precipitation would change. Different regions have different percentages of change. So in fact, the tropics are predicted to have the most drying in, in the next 100 years. And so they actually have the highest risk for extinction of vertebrates. Is it also because biodiversity is so dense there? Exactly, yeah. So the, the largest risks that we in fact found were for things that love water. So things like frogs and salamanders, which need both warm temperatures, but also really wet conditions for reproduction as well mm -hmm. as to survive. And so because they are most diverse in tropical mountains, and those are predicted to be the most drying in the next hundred years or drier, that they actually, they're, um, depending on which models that you use, you can get extinction risks to 80%, meaning 80% of the species that live, say, on Costa Rican mountains could go extinct. Wow. And you talk about 60,000 plus species. I take it you're not out there trapping many of them. <laughs> Is this mostly modeling at the computer or a combination of observational data you're collecting? Right. Right. So there are 16,000 in this analysis. So these, I've been working on um, gathering data for mountain distributions of vertebrates for the last 10 years. I work specifically here in the Rockies, we test some of these um, ideas on uh, mammals. So I trap mammals in, the, in um, the Rocky Mountains and actually in Costa Rica. But the data that we're using here is just saying, okay, you know, on every mountain around the world that there's good survey data, where is the lowest elevation and highest elevation that each species is found and then we take that distribution and say okay that's their niche the, the we look in that distribution for each species the lowest and highest amount of precipitation that they live in and the lowest and uh, warmest temperatures and then we model that into the future based on the best climate change models that we have and we say okay well how much of that niche will then be existing in a hundred years so give an example of the ones you actually do trap, sort of introduce, okay. introduce us to, I know I mentioned the, the pika, and you work on many of the different vertebrates in the Rocky Mountain area, and, and, and what's happening with that. Right, so what we're doing here is we're trapping, um, in this case we're looking at mammals that are distributed from the bottom of the Rockies to the top of the mountain, and we say, okay, well, where are they living 
where did they live in the past? So we have data generated from all of the historical trapping and specimen records. Going back to, what, 1800s or even? Yes, yeah. Water? So even in our collection, we have specimens from maybe 1850. And then we compare pre-climate change and post-climate change, and we ask how far they've moved up the mountains. Um, it, it, so the prediction for temperature change alone would be that they would track upward on the mountain. So they track as temperature warms, you know, temperature gets cooler as you get higher. So you could move upward and you would track that temperature. But the, the issue with precipitation is it's not so linear. So precipitation on a mountain, you could have the highest precipitation at the base of the mountain, and then it gets drier as you go up. And so in that case, if a species has the decision to track temperature, it might track its temperature niche, but it's going to track itself out of its precipitation niche because, it has, say, it lived in a very wet, warm environment at the base of the mountain, but it's going to move up to mid-elevations, which is still that same temperature, but now it's much, much drier. So I'm imagining a mad scramble of a marmot or a pika. You know, it's going up, it's going down, it's going this way, it's going that way. Right. And in fact, is it? And, and what does this say about conservation efforts or, or where we should place priority in terms of conservation? It seems like that would be really tough. Right. Well, the issue with pika and marmots is that they are, you know, truly alpine species. So they live at the top of the mountain and they tend to already be in the edge of their mm. their temperature niche. They have a quite a cold temperature niche. But uh, marmots in particular have pretty big uh, range in elevations. Um, but yes, yeah, so if they got a lot of drier conditions at the top of the mountain, of course, the food resources that they use to put on weight to go into hibernation might be much, much lower. Um, what we're arguing with the paper is not that we're trying to predict out the extinction risk of each species, but we're trying to just show how important it is to emphasize precipitation change. And, and in the vast majority of research on climate change has really been focusing on temperature because it's easy to measure. It's easier to predict how things are going to change. But and that's not necessarily the case with precipitation. It's much harder to measure. And um, it has various factors of how it changes on a mountain. You have a dry side of a mountain, you have a wet side of the mountain. Tropical mountains are really different in their precipitation than temperate mountains. But the point we want to make is that even though it might be harder to measure, it might be many, many times more risky uh, for it, precipitation change than temperature change. And so we want to emphasize that we should study that much more than we are. Well, thank you so much. That was Christy McCain of CU. Thanks so much for coming to How on Earth. Thank um, you. She's Assistant Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at CU Boulder and Curator of Vertebrate Zoology at the University of Colorado Museum. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The executive producer is Tom McKinnon, who also produced today's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Jim Pollan is our engineer today with help from Shelley Schlender. Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to our podcast. Or download the free Stitcher app for your smartphone and find us there. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303 303- Four four seven nine nine one one for how on earth the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran, and I'm Tom McKinnon. <laughs>